Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. All right, uh, Mark 14. One thing that I have learned in studying Jesus' life, uh, especially in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, I have found that you can pick just about any moment or any event in the life of Jesus, and you can find three different responses from people when their lives um, intersect with the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, The first time I noticed this was in studying Matthew's account of the birth uh, of Jesus. Uh, If you remember back there, you have Herod, uh, who when he became aware of the Messiah's birth, he he enacted a a genocidal campaign uh, to kill all male infants in an effort to eradicate what he thought was a threat to his reign. That was one response. Uh, and we would call that like a response of antagonism, uh, active, hostile opposition uh, to Christ. And then you have the religious leaders back then uh, at Jesus' birth, the chief priests, the, the scribes, um, who when Herod brought that concern to them and, and he asked where the Messiah was to be born, well, they simply gave him information from Old Testament prophecies about where Herod might be able to find him, you know, Bethlehem and things like that. Um, But absolutely no personal interest on their own part. I mean, if you had been waiting for centuries for the promised Messiah and Herod or these wise men came and said, well, he's he's here, um, and then you told them where they could find them, wouldn't you kind of want to do more than just share that information with somebody looking for them? And finally, you have the magi, you have the wise men, who actually caused these other two responses by their arrival and their questions. And what was their their response to Jesus Christ? Well, it was adoration. So you got Herod with with antagonism. You got the chief priests and scribes and religious people of the day, and their response was one of ambivalence, didn't really care. And then you have the wise men. Their response is adoration. And in the passage that we're going to study here together this morning, those same three responses are recorded Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. And so even here on September 19th, 2021, those same three responses to Jesus, they're chosen and then they're acted upon by every single person in this world. It's a life or death question though. There is no more important thing in your life, no more important question you'll have to come to grips with than your response to Jesus Christ then what will you do with Jesus? We've already read this, but as we study it verse by verse, before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for all of these um, passages that we've learned about who Jesus is, what he offers us, what he demands of us, with such crystal um, clear uh, information and, and, and really a call, a call to make that choice, a call to realize uh, the results and the ramifications uh, of the choice that we decide to make about who Jesus is and 
what he offers us and what he demands of us. So I pray this morning that um, if there is any response that we have toward Christ that isn't the one you want, um, that isn't just complete awestruck adoration, that before we leave here this morning, your Holy Spirit would take your word and change us so that it is. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first response, uh, that response of antagonism, we see that in verses 1 to 2, and actually in verses 10 and 11. It, it bookends this whole passage. This is what it looked like then. Um, there are some individuals who, when they are met with who Jesus is, who, who he says they are, um, what he offers them and what he demands of them, they have only the response of antagonism or, or an act of hostility and opposition to Christ. Uh, I already mentioned Herod's extreme it's an extreme level uh, of antagonism at the birth of Christ. It wasn't just a mental or emotional hostility toward Jesus, an actual physical uh, attempt to murder him, e even if it meant murdering thousands uh, of other infant males in that attempt. And, and that is what verses 1 and 2 communicate to us, is the response of the chief priests and scribes here in this passage. It says, After two days was a feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him, might take Jesus by craft, and put him to death. But they said, uh, no, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. See, this is right before the, the twin feast days of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The, these two major religious holidays came one right after the other to, to the degree that they were usually just simply referred to as the Jewish Passover feast. It was a commemoration of God's miraculous and gracious work on behalf of his people uh, back in the Old Testament when he delivered them from bondage and slavery in Egypt. But unbeknownst to uh, these religious leaders, these festivals that God had commanded for them to keep as a memorial of that occasion, they also served as a type uh, or symbolic illustration of what God would do, not just for his Jewish people, but for the whole world through the death and resurrection of the promised Messiah, deliverer, Jesus Christ. When, when he, when Christ would free us from the bondage and slavery of sin and death. And verse 1 tells us that these religious leaders were scheming. They wanted to take him by craft. They had to figure out the best way uh, to arrest and kill Jesus. And it was not a simple thing to do. You see, it's Wednesday of Passion Week here. It's, it's been weeks since we uh, studied this passage. But it was just a few days earlier here that a large crowd in Jerusalem uh, was there for the upcoming festivities. They had welcomed Jesus. They had praised Jesus on what we call Palm Sunday. I know that seems like as weeks ago and chapters ago. It's literally just a few days ago uh, from this passage right here. Now, they declared Jesus as Messiah. They, they had hoped he would save them from Roman oppression. And so if these religious leaders, if they boldly just went in to arrest Jesus in public... Uh, they would have a problem. The Roman officials would uh, come down on them because it would likely cause a massive riot. Their authority would be removed. So they had to be sneaky. They had to be sly and tricky if they were going to do this right. That's what verse 2 tells us. Now, did these religious leaders have any good reason to have this kind of antagonism toward Jesus, to want to arrest and, and kill him? I mean, what law had he broken 
that was worthy of death or, or even arrest. None. There was none. Um, but he was a threat to them. He was more popular than they were with the people. He had just caused them to lose a lot of money when a few chapters ago he tossed out the thieves and money changers and extortioners from the temple, the very people that funded the lavish lifestyle of these religious leaders. And, and really, for the whole Gospel of Mark, Jesus had publicly confronted their twisting of God's word and their failure to live by it themselves. So he was a threat. Jesus was a threat to them, and they believed he needed to be eradicated by any means necessary. I want you to jump down to verses 10 and 11 now. And it's here that we find the record of how the events of the next few days and what we will study over the next few weeks and the rest of chapters 14 and 15, how they all began. Verse 10 informs us that Judas, uh, he goes to these religious leaders with a plan to help them accomplish their desire to arrest, try, and kill Jesus. It says, in Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, one of the chief priests to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad. And they promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray them. In John's gospel, he says that Judas' actions here were a result of his anger from everything that happened in verses 3 to 9, what we're going to study in just a moment. This is possibly the most well-known and evil act of betrayal in all of historical record. And what was the response of these religious leaders, these antagonistic toward Jesus, chief priests and scribes? What was their response to Judas's antagonism toward Christ? It says, when they heard it, they were glad. They were glad enough to monetarily reward him. For his help. Their antagonistic response to Jesus was such that they felt joy. They felt joy considering Christ's potential upcoming suffering and death. Jesus had been a problem for them, and now, because of Judas and his antagonism toward Christ, now they had a plan to take care of that problem. Just evil, isn't it? What a heart that's antagonistic toward Christ can be like, this active hostility and opposition to Jesus. This wasn't a one-time event. Uh, here's what antagonism toward Jesus looks like now. I mean, does it really still happen today? Not in America, right? I mean, our nation that's founded on Christian principles with a Christian heritage, not just in America, but all over the world. It happened before the event that we're reading here in Mark 14, and it's happened after. There are some whose response to Jesus is nothing but antagonism. We only have to look uh, to the book of Acts just a, a few days, maybe months after Christ's death and resurrection to see how the apostle Paul, how he acted toward Jesus by persecuting the church before he was converted. Um, he had arrested, murdered Jesus followers until Christ himself intersected with Paul's life and a vision that he had on the road to Damascus. Do you remember what Jesus said to Paul in that interaction? He said, Paul, why do you persecute me? Me. Um, when the church is persecuted, uh, when there's antagonism against the church, Jesus sees it as antagonism against himself. 
Now, if we're honest, we have very little, if any, persecution here currently. Um, other churches throughout the world not so blessed as we are. But even here, is there antagonism toward the church of Jesus Christ? Even here today in our nation, in our culture? Is there active hostility and opposition? No doubt. I mean, the last few years have, have made that clear. But what about outright antagonism toward Christ himself? Well, sure there is. Sure there is. You can go into just about any university in our nation, and if you try to defend the principles of God's word during a lecture or in an assignment, see how it is welcomed. In our state and national capitals, see what the response to the mere mention of the name Jesus is. I'll go even one further. You can go into many churches, <laughs> and when you do, evaluate what the response to a high view of Scripture is, that the Bible has absolute standards and principles that we are to willingly and joyfully submit to for, for our good and for God's glory. Not, not only is that not preached in many of those churches, it's unwelcome. Um, there is an antagonism. There is an active hostility and opposition toward Jesus and toward the word his Holy Spirit inspired. Obviously, this is not the proper response to Jesus. And I'll say this. I praise God that he takes people who are antagonistic toward him. We all, we all had a heart that once was. Uh, we were all born enemies of God because of our sinful human nature. And God can take that antagonistic toward Jesus person, and through the gospel and through our reception of it, he can radically destroy this antagonism, can he? He can. He does it all the time. We've got pews full of testimonies of just that. Second response, adoration, verses 3 to 9. This is the good one. This is the right one. It's the only right response. It can't be anything else, and it cannot be anything less. And we see this adoration in such a perfect and clear way in the actions of one woman. Um, this, this lady that uh, Wanda just sang about, John, in his gospel, he records her as Mary. There's a lot of Marys in the Bible. Uh, this is Mary, the, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Mark's gospel leaves her unnamed, but not unrecognized. In fact, God has Mark give her a special tribute uh, in verse 9, it says, Verily I say unto you, Jesus says, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she has done shall be spoken of a memorial to her. We're going to do it right now. Wanda already did it. I mean, that's a fulfillment of what Jesus promises right here. Uh, you don't meet a lot of kids named Judas, do you? I can't think of anybody that I've ever met. Uh, in fact, I looked up the the thing on like, you know, those websites about popular baby names. And uh, Judas is, there is a 0.0009% chance that a child will be named Judas. Uh, and I'm, it said 2,654. That's the ranking of how popular that name is. I'm guessing that that would even include names like Jude, which is based off of it, or, or Judah, which Judas is the Greek form of the Hebrew word. I have met people named Judah. Um, Mary, a little more popular than Judas? Still a little bit. For six decades, it was the most popular name in the world for, for a lady. 
Yeah, so, and today we celebrate, we do, as we're studying this, and was Wanda saying, we celebrate, we memorialize, we remember her adoration. Let's look at verse 3. It says, And being in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he, as Jesus sat at meat, as he was eating, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious, and she break the box and poured it on his head. So while Jesus is eating dinner at Bethany at the house of Simon, a leper that he had at some point healed earlier, Mary comes and she took one of her most precious possessions, this long-necked sealed container, and she broke it open. It had to be used now. And it had to be used completely. There's no screwing a cap back on and saving it for later. And she poured out, Mark says she poured out the contents of that container on Jesus' head. John says she did it on his feet. Um, I'm guessing because we know God's word is true, she did both. She did both. Um, Mark's focusing on what she did with the head. John focuses on what she did as she did this to Jesus' feet. Um, this is uh, an anointing, an anointing of Christ that Mark focuses on uh, with spikenard. Uh, and pure oil comes from a root in northern India. You can only find it there. It was a costly act of adoration. That's what's a very precious in verse 3. A cost, how costly? Well, we find out later in verse 5 that its value was 300 denarii or, or 300 pence, that it was a year's salary for a, a common laborer. So if we're going to correlate that to today's economic conditions, uh, a basic blue-collar uh, worker making, let's say, $10 an hour on the low end, uh, she showed her adoration of Jesus Christ was something that would be valued at, at least $20,000. $20,000, what she did. It's shocking. It is. Enough that we will see later this morning the shock, the reaction of others who witness this act of adoration. I mean, why? Why would she do this? Why would she adore Jesus in such an extravagant way? Well, her act of adoration, it communicated to Jesus and to everyone who saw her do what she did, and really to you and I, even this morning, that he was worth more. <laughs> He was worth way more to her, more than anything. Let's jump to verse 8. It says that Jesus said, She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body to the burying. So Jesus tells her detractors, all those who were mad with her and with Jesus at this seeming wastefulness, she has done what she could. Well, the Greek word, what she could there, uh, echo, uh, meaning she's done everything. She gave all. Much like the widow we studied just a, a few weeks ago with only two mites, but she cast all of it in. That's what Jesus is saying. She has done what she could. Mary had gave her everything to Jesus. And then he says here that in this act, she has anointed my body for burial. Now that's a key concept here because it tells us that unlike most of other Jesus' disciples, Mary had a deep spiritual understanding of what lay ahead for Jesus in the next few days. He would be arrested. He would be tried. He would be crucified. And not for any sin or wrongdoing that he did, but for hers and for mine and for yours. 
Jesus had offered her everything. That's what he's offering us now. Freedom from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin, by faith, uh, eternal life. And now she was offering her everything to him. She poured out her everything on his head, anointing him. I believe that in so doing, she was recognizing him as a promised Messiah, Savior, that God had promised way back in Genesis 3 to save us from our sins. I don't know uh, if she had already been saved, if she had already recognized and received Jesus as Savior prior to this, but if not, this public display of who Jesus is and what he was offering her and what he's about to do for her, it declared her faith publicly. And that church is adoration, what she did here. The single, exclusive, right response when your life intersects with Jesus. When you learn who he is and what he's done for you, you don't do anything. You can't do anything but adore in faith. And you've got to do it with your everything. That's what we're being taught here. That's what it looked like then. What does it look like now? It looks the same. (laughs) It looks exactly the same. You come to Jesus and you anoint him as the Lord and king over your life. There's nothing held back. There's no area of your life that's roped off, off limits. When he convicts you through his word and through his Holy Spirit of some sin, well, you, you confess it, you turn from it, and you live for him. You live his way. If he tells you that he has some mission for you to do, some act of service, it may be here in this church, it might be continents away. But when he tells you that, will you willingly, you joyfully, you jump up and say, me, I'll do it. Here am I. Send me. And the greatest travesty, the greatest danger in Christians is lessening this everything aspect of responding to Christ in this only right way of adoration. When you come to Jesus, you you don't come to him. You can't come to him just hoping to add him, add him to your life. Uh, Being born again, being saved, becoming a a Christian. It is not about addition, as in um, just receive him as Savior, add a little Jesus to your life, and everything will work out fine, and your life will be better. No, that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is an exchange, not an addition. Do you know when that exchange began? Just a few days from this passage. When Jesus hung on the cross for our sin, when my record of sin and rebellion against God, when it was poured out on Jesus on the cross. But that exchange is only complete. It only completely happens when you and I in humility and adoration receive him as our Savior by faith. It only happens when we give him our everything, when we make him our everything. And that's what Mary did. That's what you and I need to do as well. Anything else? Anything else? Well, it falls short of adoration. Honestly, anything else is really the third response, ambivalence. Verses 4 and 5, it says, And there were some that had indignation within themselves, and they said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? It might have been sold for more than 300 pence, given to the poor. And they murmured, against her. They murmured against her adoration of Jesus. This is what ambivalence looked like then in this passage. Indignation. Uh, According to John, it was the disciples that felt this. Indignation that they had within themselves. Listen, it doesn't ever stay there. It doesn't. 
Um, whether our response to Jesus is antagonism or, or adoration or ambivalence, it doesn't ever stay within ourselves. Uh, it will manifest itself in what we say <laughs> or what we do. And it did here in verse 4. They could not help but open their mouths and show the condition of their heart. Why was this waste of the ointment made? Do you see that? They had just called a beautiful act of adoration of Jesus. Someone giving everything to him who now was her everything. A beautiful act. That's, uh, that's what verse 6 calls it. A Greek word for good work. It literally means a beautiful work. And they had just called it a, a waste. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts, are they? From God's perspective, what Mary did was beautiful. From man's perspective, even religious man's perspective, it was wasteful. I don't intend to make more of it than God does here in his word. But when they did what they did, they weren't too far from calling Jesus a waste, were they? Not too far from that. In verse 5, you know, I can't perfectly discern their motives and reasoning from this text alone. But they all of a sudden seem to get very mission-minded, don't they? <laughs> what they could have done with this ointment. We could have sold it, given a year's salary to the poor. We could have adored you by being in service for you, being on mission for you, Jesus. Yeah, could have, would have, should have. Well, Mary did, didn't she? Mary did. They're not wrong. God's word and Jesus' instruction to his followers is that we are to be on mission. And one, one of those missions that he has given us is to relieve those who are in poverty, those who are suffering, always with the intent that when he uses us to remove or alleviate physical obstacles in their life, we might open their spiritual understanding and help them see their need for Christ. But what we got to understand here is this isn't a poor people versus Jesus dilemma. That, that's not what's going on here. It's an always versus not always contrast. They and you and I, look, we have plenty of opportunities and we will until Jesus Christ returns to be on mission doing this kind of stuff. Making sure we alleviate poverty with the goal of giving people the gospel of Christ. But they didn't have Jesus with them in person always. Mary sees, she sees this tremendous opportunity to worship, to give Jesus everything, and to make him her everything while they stood by in ambivalence, in condemnation of her, actually. They might not have had a $20,000 bottle of spikenard, um, but they had everything she had. They're everything. That's all Jesus asked for. <laughs> You're everything. You know, there's actually two responses when people witness this kind of worship. You can join in, which they failed to do, or you can stand by in ambivalent condemnation, which is usually driven by our own personal guilt. And that's one way an ambivalent response to Christ looks like now. When you see a lost sinner a formerly antagonistic to Jesus individual, when you see him or her come to Christ, what do you think? What do you say? What do you do? Do you question their motives, uh, the reality of their faith? wonder how long they're going to continue in worship before they go 
back to their old ways? Or do you have a heart that celebrates and joins in the adoration of Jesus that they are giving? Or do you cynically question its worth? You see, ambivalence is pretty dangerous. It is. It's an impediment to the adoration that Jesus demands and deserves. There's other ways that ambivalence is a response uh, to Jesus, how that appears. In, in unbelievers, it's not so much a hatred uh, for Christ as it is just a failure to recognize their own need and his worth. It, it's usually uh, in an apathetic response, something like, look, if you like Jesus, um, if you like Christianity, fine, you do you. You go to church. I'll do me. I don't need crutches. In believers, ambivalence often shows as a failure to give, to give everything. Homes and hobbies and trucks and toys and relationships and careers are held back from Jesus. I'm not speaking to any specific individual. I don't have any person or people in mind this morning because while I might know what you have, I don't know what has you. But I know this. I know this. If you are saved... If you're a Christian, only Jesus can have you. Only Jesus can have you. And Christian, if anything, if anything, good or bad, it comes between him and you, well, he isn't your everything. It, it is. It is. Um, if there's adoration, there is. <laughs> but it's not given to him. It's given to it. And you fill in the blank if there is a blank in your life this morning. If anything else is adored, the only thing left for Jesus is ambivalence. What will you do with Jesus? What will be the response that you choose this morning? Say, I don't want to. You already chose. I don't need to prolong this. He, he clearly spoke to us in his word. There is such a great contrast between the antagonism of Judas and these religious leaders and Mary there's an equally great contrast between disciples who are filled with guilt-ridden indignation at someone else's adoration and Mary. And only one. Only Mary's response of adoration is the right response. Broken and spilled out. In love for you, Jesus. That's everything we have. That's everything we are. Giving him everything. That's adoration. That's what it means to follow Jesus. In a moment, we'll sing an old hymn, kind of made new just as I am. What an amazing truth, isn't it? That Jesus takes us just as we are, but here's the thing, as we sing it, he doesn't ever intend to leave us that way when we come to him. He takes antagonistic unbelievers just as they are, and he transforms them into men and women who adore Jesus. And he takes sometimes ambivalent Christians whose gaze has been grabbed by other things and he says, quit trying to find satisfaction in what will not satisfy. Jesus says, give me your everything. Jesus says, make me your everything. Adore. As Tommy comes and we sing this song, however God's used his word and his Holy Spirit's moved in your heart to respond to it this morning, I just ask that you would obey.